Let's take our Bibles open to Esther chapter 8. And we're going to finish that chapter this morning. Esther chapter 8. We've been in this chapter for two or several weeks anyhow. At least two weeks, maybe three. I guess three weeks. We took two weeks studying the day that everything changed. But as we finish these last few verses in this chapter, we're going to look at the results of effectual fervent prayer. Now, James tells us that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And we're going to see the results of that in these few verses today. But just as a way of review, in chapter 4, after the decree of Haman to destroy the Jews was distributed, we find the Jews weeping, fasting, and praying. Now, the scripture doesn't say they're praying, but we discussed why we're there. Why would they be weeping and fasting if there wasn't prayer? Remember, the whole book of Esther does not mention God by name. It doesn't mention prayer. It doesn't mention worship of God. But we know it was happening by the context of what is being said. So many of the Jews are weeping, fasting, and praying. Now two months have passed since that time. And now a new decree from Mordecai is, designed, is signed and distributed. And we've studied the changes that happened that day that the decree was signed. Haman was hanged. His estate was given to Esther. Mordecai was promoted and given the responsibility to write a decree to protect the Jews. Now, let's look at verses 15 through 17 and look at these results of what I believe has been the effectual fervent prayer of the Jews since that first decree was signed. Esther chapter 8 and verse 15. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel, blue and white, and with a great crown of gold, and with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. And many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Now again, I believe these results we see are direct results of the Jews praying and fasting in chapter 4, and probably throughout this entire time up until, well, this day, these events are occurring. Now, we say this day, and understand, a lot of the events happened that day, but Getting the messengers out to the different provinces didn't all happen in one day because they didn't have cars to go 75 miles an hour to get there, okay? Uh, they were going by horse and mule and all these other animals that list there. So several days may have passed till every province heard. But the day it was signed is the day that all these things started happening, Okay. So three ways in which I want to see the results of effectual fervent prayer this morning. First, we'll see there is honor of God's people in verses 15 and 16. Second result, also in verses 15 and 16, is rejoicing by all. Rejoicing by all. And then the last result found in verse 17 is the conversion of many. So we, you and I, Christian, need to realize that what... God's word is true, and when James writes, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, that there will be results when you and I are praying as we ought to be. So let's look to the Lord for guidance, please. Father, again, speak to us from your word. 
teach us. And Lord, may we truly be Christians that are praying Christians, ones that realize that you are a God who hears and answers prayer. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. First, we see honor of God's people. Now, sometimes honor comes in different ways, but I will say this. God will honor the one who is serving him. And it may not be on this earth. It may be that it's not until the, the uh, judgment seat of Christ that one who has been serving Christ, who's been a, one who's been a prayer warrior, effectually fervent, fervent in prayer, receives an award, a reward then. But let me tell you, the rewards in heaven are far better than the rewards here on earth. However, Mordecai did receive, if you will, a reward here on earth in that he was promoted... And we already talked about it. He was promoted basically second in command. The position that Haman had held earlier that day, now Mordecai holds. And so verse 15 is very descriptive in that he has on royal apparel and a crown showing the position that he now holds as second in command of all the kingdom. Now that's pretty impressive to go from a nobody to the second in charge in one day. You know, he's not the only one of God's people that happened to. We know another guy that went from jail to being second in charge in one day. His name was Joseph. You know, when God decides to move, the circumstances don't matter. God can change the circumstances in an instant. Sometimes we look at it and say, there's no hope, there's no way that this can change, instead of trusting an almighty God who can change our circumstances. Now, sometimes he chooses not to change the circumstances, but gives the grace to endure whatever trial we're in. But many times he does choose to change it. And, and like I said, there's two examples, at least in Scripture, of men that one day are nobody, and the next day they're second in charge of an entire kingdom. But he did not seek position. God placed him there. Now, that's important. You know, there are many in ministry who seek the position. It's important that a man is called of God to be in ministry. And I'm looking at Al because I know he served in ministry. And if you're not called of God to be in ministry, I promise you, you will end up quitting. It's not for you. Matter of fact, when I went to our pastor, when I was at Bethel Baptist Church, I went to our pastor and I said, I believe God has called me to ministry. And he looked me square in the eye and says, Jim, if you can do anything else, do it. And I thought, well, that's the dumbest advice I ever heard because I'm the maintenance man here at the church and he just wants me to stay here on maintenance and he knows I can do maintenance work. So that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Well, the dumb one was me. Okay, because what I realized what he meant by that was not if you can, if you have the ability to do something else. It, what he meant by that is if you can do something else and be comfortable doing it, do it. But what happened is God kept putting a burning desire in my heart to be in ministry. And it wouldn't go away. And that's when I realized what he was saying. It's not that I can't do something else. It's that I can't do anything else, if, you may, if that makes any sense. I can't do anything but preach the word. As Paul, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. As Jeremiah, who said, I'm not going to preach anymore in God's name, but God's word was in his uh, bones is a fire he could not contain. That is the way you know you're called the ministry. Is God just puts it in you and you can't do anything else but. 
Really, though, that should be our, our way we serve God in any capacity. We just have a burning desire to serve God in this area. Not because, well, nobody else will do it, so I'll do it. Although sometimes that ends up happening. I fully understand. But, you know, God has given certain people a passion to work in the nursery. I am not one of them. I love kids, but I'm glad we have other people to work in the nursery. I'll just put it that way, okay? Some have a, whatever the area might be. You know, some are gifted in music and just have a desire to serve God in music. Well, I can play a radio. And I can do it pretty well, actually. Actually, sometimes I even mess that up. But anyhow, moving on. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Even after the honor that Mordecai had received earlier that day, he went right back to what he was doing. And Jesus gives an, as an illustration, Christian, of how you and I ought to live and to view ourselves. Hold your place here in Esther and go with me, if you will, over to the Gospel of Luke. Luke in chapter 14. In Luke 14, Jesus teaching about the way you and I need to view ourselves and have an attitude of humility gives this parable in verse 7. Luke 14, starting at verse 7, And he brought forth a parable to those which were bidden, when he marked how they chose out the chief room, saying to them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee of him come and say unto thee, Give this man place, and thou be in with shame, take of the lower room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh may say unto thee, Friend, go up to the higher, and then thou shalt have worship in the presence of them to sit at the meat with, that, with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So, when you would go to a feast or a wedding, there was a ranking position, if you will. You know, we still have a head table, right? Well, I can't go into somebody's wedding and just sit there at the head table like I belong, right? Okay, no, I would go and I would sit uh, according to where I belong. Like, if I really know the people, I might sit up close front and maybe there's a reserve table there. Or if I really don't know the people, then I'm kind of way back in the corner, right? I knew them a little bit, but not, not, not that great. Or I just decided to crash a party so I can get cake. And, you know, so I'll sit in the corner and hide. But what he's saying is many people, when they would walk in, would walk right up to the head table and sit down like they belong there. And then, of course, the one in charge has to come up and say, I'm sorry, this seat's already taken. Could you please move over here? And now you're embarrassed by it because you have to go somewhere that's a lower station, a lower position. He says, so when you're invited, just take the lowest seat. And then if they come to you and say, hey, no, 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 that's not where you belong. Come on up here. Okay, so that's how you and I should treat all of life is not be seeking that position, not seeking the uh, praise of men, not seeking uh, others, but to take the low position and allow God to exalt us. Now, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes this is frustrating, applying this. You and I need to realize not to seek a high position. Now, I'll be honest with you. I hate the way our society is set up. Because when you do a resume or you do an interview, you have to sit there and, and convince these people that you are the greatest thing since sliced bread. 
I really hate that system. You know, I can't disclose too much because it's all been kind of in closed session, but we've been doing interviews for a new city manager. And it's interesting to watch different people. The ones that come in with an arrogant attitude of, I got this, and others who may come in with a confidence, but you can tell they're nervous and got a humility about them. You know what I'm saying? Be careful of the ones that are really arrogant and boastful themselves. I find most times people that love to tell you how wonderful they're going to do a job usually don't. You know what I'm saying? Those that realize they can make mistakes and will make mistakes are usually the ones that are going to do a great job for you. So Christian, there needs to be a humility. And Mordecai did not seek position, but God placed him in that position. Now what a contrast this was to Haman. Haman was full of pride, but Mordecai was humble. Haman felt he deserved a position, but Mordecai understood it was God who placed him there. When Haman went out, he forced people to bow before him. Mordecai realizes, God put me here. And the people rejoice when they see him willingly. Did you notice that? Let's go back to Esther chapter 8 and verse 15. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and with great crown of gold and with garment of fine linen and purple in the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. It's not that he's sitting there, bow before me, as Haman did. It's just that they see him and all of a sudden they're rejoicing. Now let's stop and think for a moment. Why? Why do you think when they saw Mordecai in charge, there was rejoicing. Think back. I believe the testimony and the character of Mordecai had been evident to these people all this time to where they realized this man is a humble servant who has convictions, and whether they agreed with his convictions or not, they knew he was a man of conviction, and he was going to stand by what he said, and his desire was for the best of the people, not for self-serving reasons. And I believe the testimony of Mordecai had become that evident that even the Persians in the city are rejoicing when they see him in charge because they realize his goal is not going to be a self-serving goal. Proverbs 27, 2, let another man praise thee and not thine own mouth, a stranger and not thine own lips. In chapter 3 and verse 8, if you want to flip back just a few pages, Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people of the provinces of the kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. Remember this? King, they don't keep your laws. They're not obeying your laws. They don't even do what you tell them to. Now it's very interesting because one of them, Jews, is now writing law. Which, by the way, kind of shows again, Haman had it wrong. He was lying about the Jews. Of course they were law keepers. But not only was Mordecai honored with position, but the Jews were honored by others. Let's go down now to verse 16. It says, the Jews had light, and gladness, and joy, and what? Honor. The word honor there has the idea of value or preciousness. Before the Jews were hated by many, now they're honored by many. Now we understand that this was a great work of God, changing the thoughts toward the Jews, but I believe it also shows how fickle people really are. 
the crowd could be led to do pretty much anything. You don't believe that? Just look around society for a while. I mean, the crowd can be led to do whatever they're told to do. People don't think for themselves. They just follow what they're told to do. Proverbs 16, 7, When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. Let me read that verse again. When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. These people have been praying and fasting and weeping, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, humbling themselves before God, and now even their enemies are at peace with them. You see, all this, folks, is a result of the effectual fervent prayer of these Jews over the last two months since that first decree was, desi- was signed. So we see the honor of God's people. Let's look secondly at the rejoicing by all. In verse 15, we have the people of Shushan rejoiced. The end of the verse, in the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. Rejoice has the idea to cry aloud or to make shine. Glad has the idea of being merry or joyful. Proverbs 11.10 tells us, When it goeth well with the righteous, the city rejoiceth. And when the wicked perish, there is shouting. Both happened that day, right? Haman perished, and the righteous Mordecai was exalted to the position of second in charge, and the city's rejoicing over it. You know, I believe a lot of the issues we face today is that we're not putting into office people who have godly character. We want to see our nation rejoice again as a nation. And I understand all these liberals saying, oh, well, you can't bring your religion into politics, and you know, we just can't do it, blah, 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 blah. Listen, when Christians were in charge, things were a whole lot better in our society, were they not? Again, these were the same ones that knew Mordecai and saw his testimony standing for right no matter what. And again, I believe that's why they brought rejoicing, because they saw a man who was going to stand for what is right. Proverbs 29.2, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. So we see Shushan the palace rejoicing, but now we see the Jews also rejoicing, The Jews had light, verse 16, and gladness and joy and honor. Could you imagine getting the letter that says, okay, here's a new law from the king. You can now defend yourself and your family. That would be absolutely amazing, would it not? That would bring joy. Now, understand, Christian, our joy is not based on circumstances. Our joy is found in God. But when you get good news, doesn't it bring a smile to your face? Yes, it does. And especially when it's something you have been praying for. And here the Jews have been praying and fasting and seeking God in this matter. And now God answers it in a very miraculous way. That should bring joy to them, should it not? So let's look at these words. Light has the idea of light of joy and happiness. Psalm 97 verse 11 says, Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Psalm 112, verse 4, Under the upright there ariseth light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. You know, it's like a light went on. There's now light at the end of the tunnel, as we say, right? 
What was supposed to happen 10 months from this day? They're all supposed to be killed. That's kind of dark, isn't it? Now, all of a sudden, there's a light. Okay, in 10 months, you're supposed to be killed. But you can defend yourselves. But Christian, you and I not only have light in the fact that we, have, we understand the end, right? We understand that if we have Christ as our Savior... When we die, we're going to have, we have eternal life in him. We're going to spend eternity with him in heaven, right? That's a light no matter how dark it gets, right? But Christian, we go further than that in that Christ commanded us to be light in this world. This world in which we live is a dark world. But Christian, you and I are to be light in this world. Now, the light doesn't come from us. The light we shine in this world is the light of Jesus Christ. And I liken it to the sun and the moon. Because you know the moon doesn't give off light of itself, right? The moon reflects the light of the sun. And so you and I are like the moon reflecting the light of Jesus Christ, the sun. Now what happens when the world gets between the sun and the moon? darkness. There is no light shining because the world is in the way. And we go through all these moon cycles and we see this happen all the time, right? But when the world is out of the way, what do we see? A full moon. You ever go out in a full moon and it's like, wow, it's almost like daylight out here. You can actually see to walk around and everything else in the darkness because it's so bright. Especially after a nice fresh snow, when you get the light reflecting off that white snow on a full moon. Christian, that's how you and I are to be, is to get the world out of our lives so that you and I can fully reflect the light of the sun. So there was light, then there was gladness, or joy, or mirth. Psalm uh, 30, verse 11, Thou hast turned me from my mourning into dancing, thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. The gladness replaced the weeping. There was joy. Again, our joy is not based on circumstances, but in the person of Jesus Christ. But they had joy in the fact that, hey, now we're able to defend ourselves. Now there's a chance that we won't die. And then the end of the verse says that there was honor, which we discussed earlier. Let's go down to verse 17. And in every province and every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness. There we see those words again. A feast and a good day. Hmm. Seems like people who have something for which to be thankful like to sit down and eat. We did that Thursday, right? And somebody reminded me Wednesday that that tradition has now been in our country for 400 years. Sadly, there are those who don't know God, and I believe are not truly understanding the full meaning of thanksgiving. But Christian, you and I have so much for which to be thankful. And so here the Jews, when they get this proclamation, what do they do? They have a big feast. Why not? Let's, hey, come on over, let's eat. We're not going to die in 10 months, so we might as well get fat. And then they had a good day. Oh, I bet getting that letter was a good day. <laughs> it's a day you're going to talk about for a while, right? You know, we've all had good days, and unfortunately, 
bad days, we call them, but there is no such thing, I think, because every day God gives us is a good day, right? But there's days that are maybe, in comparison for our sake, better than others, right? If I were to say, what's the best day you ever had? Some may say, you know, the day I got married, the day our child was born, the day of this, the day I got saved, the day of whatever the case may be, but there's something that sticks out in your mind that that was a good day. Now, it doesn't mean everything that day went absolutely perfect, but overall it was a good day, something great happened, and you remember the great things that happened, right? This would be one of those events that they would be talking about for a long time. It was a good day. So we see the honor of God's people, the rejoicing by all, and again, this rejoicing was a result of their effectual fervent prayer, the time that they spent fasting and weeping and praying. I think too often we want to jump to the rejoicing part. Okay, God answered a prayer, but we don't want to invest the time of weeping and praying and fasting. The time of rejoicing will come. Now's the time for the weeping and praying and fasting. Which brings us to the last point, the conversion of many. And in every province and every city, whithersoever the king's commandment is decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day, and many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Now it's interesting. I read a couple commentaries on this, and several of them were like, now most of these conversions probably were not real conversions, and probably were just getting, saying they were Jews because, you know, now the Jews could defend themselves, and blah, 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 blah. Okay, you know what? We still do the same thing today. Well, I really don't think they really meant it when they got saved. Well, who are you? Now, I understand sometimes there's no evidence. I get that. But who are you and I to say that that individual is saved or not saved? Can you see their heart? Now, a more proper way to say it is I have not seen evidence of salvation in their life. But to say they're not saved puts you judge and jury and you're not God. Now, if I say there's no evidence, that still leaves it open-ended. Do you follow the difference? And yes, I've been guilty of it myself. But God's convicted me of this, and I'm trying very hard not to say that anymore because I'm not their judge. So whether these conversions were real or not, I believe many of them actually were real. It says that there was a fear of the Jews. Why do you suppose there was a fear of the Jews? Just the very fact that the Jews could defend themselves may have scared some of them. God says in Deuteronomy 2, verse 25, This day will I begin to put the dread of thee and the fear of thee upon the nations that are under the whole heaven, who shall hear report of thee and shall tremble and be in anguish because of thee. When the spies went into the promised land the second time, not the first time, the second time, and they met Rahab. What did Rahab say to them? These nations here, including Jericho, fear you. And she points back to the events that God had done, delivering them from Egypt and how he had given them victories uh, leading up to their coming you know, through the wilderness and everything else. She points back to those events and says, we're scared of you. You ever think of that? God put a fear in the Canaanites of the Jews. Now, one of the biggest things 
Anybody who goes to combat or war, there is a nervousness, there is a little bit of fear and trepidation in your heart, right? But if you fear your enemy because you feel he's more powerful than you, you've already kind of defeated yourself in a lot of ways, haven't you? You're starting out with a defeatist attitude. They're going to win this. You've got to go in thinking, we're better, we're going we're to win. You can't go in thinking, all right, well, we've got to fight this because we have to, but they already won. Because you already kind of gave up. God put a fear in the nations of the Jews. I can't help but wonder if this isn't why some, such as Hitler, wanted to destroy the Jews, because he actually feared the Jews. And by the way, others throughout history have tried destroying the Jews. But there was a fear there, not because they're anything special, because as Al pointed out a little bit ago, they're just common people. They weren't, they weren't anything special. It's the power of their God that created the fear in them, and God placed the fear in those people because of them. I don't believe the world today has a proper fear of Christians or of Christians' God. Now, I don't want people to be scared of me, understand, but I want them to have a proper fear of God, and there is not a fear of God today. Why? These Jews had spent the better part of two months praying, fasting, weeping, seeking God, humbling themselves before God, and God put a fear of them and the people around them. You know why I believe this world doesn't fear our God? Because we don't fear our God. If we had a proper fear of God, a proper awe of who God is, then Christian, wouldn't we be spending time praying and fasting and weeping and seeking God? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We see these results of these folks praying. They saw people who were to be destroyed, not only saved, but also protected and defended. God saves, protects, and defends us. Understand, along with these letters would have come the whole knowledge that Haman was trying to destroy Mordecai, that he built this gallows to hang Mordecai upon, but the king that night had the chronicles read that reminded him of an event that Mordecai had saved his life. He wants to honor Mordecai, has Haman honor him, and then the banquet happens, the second banquet of Esther happens, and Haman crawls on the bed with Esther. The king walks back in, thinks he's trying to defile his wife, and he ends up on the very gallows upon which he designed for Mordecai. And then Mordecai, that very same day, is given the ring of the king and given a royal garment and given a crown and made second in charge of all, the, all, all of Persia. Don't you think that that would change people's mind about the Jews? I'll tell you what. If I were a Persian, I think I would have a little bit of fear of the Jews all of a sudden, and they're God, don't you? If I were a pagan man living in that country, and I heard that, that account given to me, I'd be like, you know what? There's something different about their God than my God. Because remember, the pagan gods that they worshipped couldn't have no power to do such a thing, and, all, and their God had this great power. It would get me thinking about their God. Would it not you? 
But I'm glad the God that the Jews serve is the same God I do serve. And that what he did for them, he will do for us today. Christian, we need a great revival in our land. But if you study revivals, it always started with a group of people saying, we're going to commit ourselves to prayer. And there's different accounts of different revivals and how this prayer would happen. Sometimes it would be some just gathering uh, at a church, some gathering by um, a barn and a haystack. I mean, you know, different places where they would go and they would just pray and then all of a sudden more people would show up and more people would show up. And sometimes it got to the point then when preachers would get up to preach that people would just start flocking in saying, what do I need to do to be saved? Where did that come from? It came from the power of the Holy Ghost, folks. And we sometimes to put so much effort, and we need to be out there sharing the gospel with people, but we put so much physical effort into it that we forget the spiritual power of praying and asking God to do His work. You know, December 11th, we're going to have a great opportunity to go and share the gospel with our community. And I know many of you are ready to go out there and you're going to be walking the, the parade and you're going to hand out the stuff, but how much time are we investing in prayer? God do a great work that day. Because you know what? I don't want those tracts we hand out to be thrown in the garbage. I want them to be taken home and I want them to be read. And I want people to understand their need for Jesus Christ. And I want to see souls saved, don't you? But folks, it's going to take effectual, fervent prayer. And here we have recorded for us in the end of chapter 8 in the book of Esther, these great results of two months of the Jews praying and fasting and weeping and humbling themselves before God and sitting in sackcloth and ashes in that there was honor now among the Jews. Mordecai was elevated to this position to be one to help save the Jews. There is great rejoicing among not just the Jews, but all the land and many people turning to God, becoming Jews, saying, you know what? There's something different about their faith, something different about their God. I want what they have. And so I started this section by saying about the commentator saying that some of these weren't real. I, I think many of them were real because they saw the power of God working and they say, my God doesn't have this power. Tell me about your God. You say, what makes you convinced of that? Well, because the great work that God did. Also, with Judaism, to become a Jew, there was a sign of Judaism, was there not? Now let me ask a question. And I don't mean this as a crass question. This is just a true question. What man in his right mind, if he wasn't serious about becoming a Jew, would go through circumcision? If he truly didn't want to follow Jehovah God, why would he do that? Because you understand that would be part of it, right? I believe these were true conversions because of the great work God had done. And the great work God did was because his people, when they heard the decree that they're to be destroyed, got serious about praying to God. Let's not wait till a decree is signed that Christians are to be destroyed before we get serious about praying to God. Now, it's interesting. If I had made that statement 10 years ago, you'd all look at me like I'm crazy. That could never happen in our country. You know what's sad? 
2021, making that comment, you look at me and say, yeah, that's a very real possibility in the next 10, 15 years. I want in 2022, church, and we don't have to wait till then, but let's set aside more times. We're going to have, as we had last year, several prayer breakfasts, and we have our Wednesday night prayer service. But folks, maybe we can just gather together in somebody's house or something or just have an extra service. I don't know. But let's get serious about praying and asking God to do a great and mighty work and humbling ourselves before him. The effectual fervent prayer God's people brought honor, rejoicing, and the conversion of many. Let us remember the power of prayer.